I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. And as always, at least for the Brideshead Revisited episodes, Andrew Kern. <laughs> How's it going, everyone? It's going good. Delightfully well. This is the first time that we have talked to each other since the Circe conference ended, which which the end of the Circe conference is just really sad for me. <laughs> you know, I'm really sad. I when was, they before, end. Be, before you started talking just now. I was going to say, because David asked, how are you guys? I was going to say, I'm very sad because this is the end of our brideshead discussion. And uh. then you pour salt on my wounds, and I am now rising <laughs> on the floor in agony. But he I will sucker punched Andrew, to endure. <laughs> yes, he sucker punched me. And that's I what that, punch that picture meant on the... On the Facebook page where they were asking, <laughs> that's what that—that's the look you have on your face right now. I think Tim, that's a good invitation for people to join the Close Reads Facebook page because you get to see a picture of me. Uh, I don't know. I do. Oh, he I has look lots like, of Close Reads podcast photos that are going to be going up over the next few days. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying oh, those. There's many. It's this moment. <laughs> right, like I intentionally don't listen to to the podcast because I, I I feel like if I hear myself, I might never speak again. So that, like Graham's true. now showing me what I look like, which is almost as bad. But at least you know, <laughs> not everybody sees that. <laughs> yeah, it's only one one hey. time. Andrew, the and thing they... I can't figure out is how does he take us and take pictures of us as a group before and make them so interesting? I mean, it's not like we ever are really interesting. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. How does he take this boring podcast and make it exactly? <laughs> well, not the podcast. The podcast is wonderful, but it's the people. It's us. We look tame. We there's look an, boring. There's an equation here that I'm yeah. not sure makes sense. Hey, Tim, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to ask. You know. Oh yeah. David and Andrew, you guys do Sorry, so you, much work to get ready for the Circe you know, national conference. And then when you're actually at the conference, like, what do you guys feel like after the conference is over? So, you know how... Oh, yeah, I'd like to hear from David. You know how Thanksgiving is like, you cook for two days or three days or at least all day, and then everyone eats and like 15 minutes later, they're gone from the table? That's what it feels like. Aww. Um, That's rough. It actually, well... uh, yeah, I mean, as long as it's delicious, um, it uh, it actually goes by like really fast, and I always wonder why we don't do an extra day or two. But then I figure probably, you know, leave the people wanting more. That's my philosophy in life. Yeah, <laughs> under promise and over. 
liver. <laughs> yeah, yeah some, something like that. If yeah. you over-deliver, do people leave wanting more? It sounds to me like we, them leaving more wanting more means you've under-delivered. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're close to reading Tim's comment. Yeah, we are. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I do have, I do have the, the vile temperament. Close reader, I'll admit that. <laughs> <laughs> I well, feel like you're expressing feel... a lot of post-war disillusionment right now, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, really? Just... Oh, I think so. Yeah, that's what well, I feel. That is, post-party. That is what I feel after a Cersei conference. I feel post-war disillusionment. <laughs> you know, that's so appropriate to say that, although not about our conference, because <laughs> because there's just no there's no entering the despair of the 1920s. I don't know. He does such a good job in the book writing about that era, keeping it in, keeping it, not letting it, well, keeping it simple and unobtrusive, you know, the despair. It's felt everywhere. It's seen everywhere, but it's not loud. It's just there. Mm -hmm. And he's so good at that. And there's, unlike, say, well, I don't want to say he's not good at Hemingway just puts that despair right on display and says, here, this is what we feel. And, and, and what's his name again that wrote this book? Hemingway. Yeah, he doesn't put it on display in the same way. He uses, he uses it as the, you know, the water that he puts the fish in the aquarium with, or he uses it as the background for his painting, whereas Hemingway makes it the whole thing. And I don't mm-hmm. mean to say Hemingway shouldn't have. But it's just amazing to me how you have to sink into the book to feel the despair. But once you notice it, it's it's so profound. It's funny. It's funny. You could say that that Hemingway's approach was like a boxer's approach. It was it was very ah. direct, you know, and you could mm-hmm. say that Waugh's approach is like an artist's approach. It's indirect. Well, as you guys yeah, like are he shot, getting the at, way the light reflects off of everything, right? So yeah. it's like how the despair just bounces Beautiful. off of everything. A painter's, I, a painter's approach. I felt a segue coming on from David. I just, is that, is it just me? Or Wait a minute, you can segue into it. You can feel your segue into a segue. Well, I, I felt a segue coming I, from David. I was actually going to say that um, jumping into the book lacked a sub, a segue. Um, but as you are getting at in your comments here, we are here to chat about uh, Brideshead Revisited, and we are going to answer your questions, the listener questions, which were posted on the Facebook page. Um, this, as we've said, will be the last time we talk about this book ever on this podcast. We will never reference it again. We'll never reference our conversations about it again. We will move on without any I'm burning further... burning my coffee immediately after this show. Um, loved it that much, huh? But before... Burning your coffee? But before we get any further into this uh, enlightening and insightful conversation, we need to take care of a little bit of business. Um, we have two sponsors uh, this this month. Uh, our friends over at Scola Academy are sponsoring Close Reads for the whole summer. Uh, Tim, why might it be that, that Scola um, is, is sponsoring this particular podcast throughout this summer? Well, just like Close Reads, David, Scole believes in a peaceful approach to education, an unhurried approach to education. And I think that they feel like not only do they have a kinship with the Searcy Institute, but they have a kinship with 
close reads and close readers because is, is it possible there's we share a, an approach. There's a common denominator though, like a common human denominator going on between Skola Academy and this podcast. Oh, that's a great question. You know, yeah. You know what it is? Angel, you? Oh, you. Oh, of Whoa. course, yeah. <laughs> Classic Tim. It's always about him. <laughs> always about Tim. So, Tim, you are but teaching. It is, but it is. You are teaching four classes this fall with Scully Academy, all of them literature and history classes. And where can people learn more about these courses? David, they can go to scolaacademy.com to learn about these classes. And I, we probably, I probably should have said this off the air, but we're only going to be offering two classes now. We, um, Scully is going to only offer the two, the first two great books classes, which are ancient Greek and Roman literature and history, and medieval and Renaissance literature and history. Okay. Um, the second two classes were not filling up as rapidly as they wanted to, so they are going to. We're just going to push ahead with the first two classes. It's it, Scully is kind of starting a whole new department. They are well established in um, for what they do, but this is a a new adventure that they are trying. And so I think they wanted to see they they were we were trying to see if there was a market for four of the classes. It looks like the first two classes, the ones that I mentioned, ancient Greek and Roman and medieval and Renaissance, those are kind of like the sweet spots. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's what we're going ahead with. So uh, but what I don't understand is who, who cares what the classes are, Tim? You're the teacher. And we've got, we've, got this, we've got this audience out here that hasn't signed up for your class. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed. Well, I'm not really because they have real life to live, but... <laughs> Disappointed. Well, so if you have a ninth well, through a 12th grade student uh, that would benefit from such an engaging seminar style great books course that could also help him or her earn two high school credits, then these courses from Tim are a great option for you. So you can head over to scolaacademy.com. Go ahead, Angelina. Oh, I was just going to say in defense of our listeners, I, I think most of them have younger kids. So no offense to Tim. Oh, well, yes. Okay. So Tim, you have to wait a few years. <laughs> yep, I gotta wait a few years. Well, speaking can, can of I, speaking of waiting, we'll go, ahead. Want, go I, ahead. I want to give one little segue into something that happened at the conference. I mentioned this to you guys off the air, but I think it's worth mentioning on the air. Um, at the conference, you know, one of the things that the Searcy Conference does is we hold we host colloquies, and so there'll be a quote or a short story, and you know, anywhere from 12 to 20 people will gather and we'll discuss this quote or this short story. So the first colloquy that I did during the conference was of a short story. I'm not going to mention it. I gave, so I had like maybe 15 people in the colloquy. I gave them no background information about the story, no background information about the author. And I just read it. It took maybe three minutes to read. And it's one of these stories that I think is really intended to make a point, a very clear and simple point, unlike a book like Brideshead Revisited, in which um, the meaning of the book is multifaceted. This book was very, this, this story was very simple, very to the point, but it's not easy to understand without any sort of background information. So I sat down with these readers and I'm always, I was like, I wonder how this is going to go because I'm just not giving them much of anything. And we talked for about an hour and 10 minutes. And you guys, 
I cannot tell you how fantastic the readers were. I mean, absolutely, the way that they went about probing the question, the, probing the story, what was the meaning? What is the intention? Why did the author use this word? Why did he emphasize that? What do you? The way in which they went about it was so superb. And I will add, I really think easily rivaled, if not surpassed, I'm going to go ahead and say it surpassed most of the master's level seminar classes that I've been a part of. It was incredible. And I finished, I finished the colloquy and we were kind of going to all go back to the conference. And I said, as we were kind of packing up our books, I said, you guys, that was just extraordinary. And I really do think that I've been in, as you guys have been in, you know, master's level or PhD level, PhD level seminars. And the reading that my, I never have, you haven't the reading that my, that those colloquy discussers did, I think surpassed any of the seminar level discussions that I've ever been in. It was that good. And this is a, this is a compliment to us. I said, you guys, that was just fantastic. And I think it was Marin said, well, it's because we listen to close reads. You guys have taught us how to read. And I, and she, I think she really meant it. She wasn't just like kind of, she wasn't, I don't know, like really trying to give a lying. She wasn't lying. And she, I don't think she was intending to give a compliment. She was just kind of stating a fact. I had several that, people that, come up to me at the conference and say basically the same thing, that they were learning how to ask questions of what they read and learning how to dig deeper. Isn't that exactly it? It's asking questions. That, it is. Thank you for saying this, because this is what we're in the world for, right? We, sorry if this is off topic, but David and I just finished the uh, last stages of getting the, the reading, the guide to reading finished and that's what it's all about is is learning how to ask questions and be purposeful and attentive and being the the reader instead of being the it's almost like a student in school becomes an administrator for the teacher to call information out of a book and then give it to the teacher but the teacher doesn't even need it but to ask questions yourself that was an unkind thing to say it was an exaggeration but i said it's almost like but the but the the act of reading with your own questions is everything. Well, well, that's it, right? I mean, we talk about the, the great books have something to teach us, but not passively, right? You have to learn how to ask the right questions for it to mm-hmm. give you the answer. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get, uh, we're going to actually do that here actively here in a few minutes, but I got two more pieces of business we got to take care of. Um, before that, New College Franklin is actually sponsoring the entire Cersei Podcast Network for August and September. And if you've been to our conference, Thank if you, you were there a couple of weeks ago, then you know. Yeah, we love those guys. Yeah, Greg Wilbur uh, spoke. Jonathan Rogers was there. And New College Franklin respects the sacrifices that you have made as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. But how do you sustain this during the college years? 
Uh, they think that you can do that through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship. And that's what New College uh, Franklin tries to do, a building on the foundation that you have laid. So if you have a student that wants to take the next step in his or her education, or if you're listening and you're of college age and you want to you want to do that, then you can join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. So head over there for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience, uh, or just learn more over at newcollegefranklin.org. And um, they're good friends of ours, and we're, we are thankful and happy to be partnering with them, and um, we're grateful that they're helping make this podcast possible. So again, that's newcollegefranklin.org. All right, one more piece of business I want to take care of quickly. So we, we have a goal that we've decided that we want to set here. We want to get the Close Reads, specifically the Close Reads podcast, into the top 25 on on the charts in all literature podca- podcasts. So we have a we kind of hatched a little plan for this. And, you know, you don't have to participate if you don't want to, but it might be fun. So we have one... Dude, I might have to get on iTunes for this. This sounds exciting. <laughs> we, have, we, have, exciting. we have one Close Reads mug that we've been saving. Um. So what we're going to do is we are going to, <coughs> excuse me, we are going to give that away to one person who participates in this. So what we want you to do is head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts and leave two kinds of rev- reviews. Leave a starred review and leave a written review on the page for this podcast. Now, that's not the page for the whole Cersei Podcast Network. It's for just the Close Reads page. And so what we need you to do is we need you to actually subscribe to the Close Reads podcast. You know, we can cheat the system a little bit. If you are listening to it through the network or even just through the browser, you can still go do this. You can still go subscribe to it. And, those, you know, that will help help get it up the charts and help us out. Um, and, then what we'll, and then what you do is go over to the Facebook page and I'm going to leave a little... Um, comment on there with the instructions for this and then just comments underneath that you've done that and when at the end of that we will um we'll draw a winner of that mug so if you have one if you already have a close reads mug you can get another one if you get chosen as the winner or maybe you can give it to somebody else and then if you don't have one you know perfect chance to possibly win another one and again like i said this is the very last one we have available for for a while so um if you want to participate in that, we would appreciate that, and hopefully, we can get this show up into the top twenty-five in the literature pod, the literature category on iTunes. So that's some, David. some shameless, shameless self-promotion. David, yes, I have a question about that. So last night at the apprenticeship banquet, Matt Bianco divided his apprenticeship into houses. Is there a way we could divide the uh, close readers into houses, and then, and then that would that would make them. Uh, fight each other over over at the at the um, iTunes place or whatever it is that so we can really get them motivated to move our rank up. Is there a way to you know get a competition going among our close readers? Uh, Regional uh, houses. Something I like will. That? Um, something like that. I will think about this. <laughs> I don't he know. Had the house of Homer, the house of Plato, the house of Virgil, and the house of Shakespeare. I will Ooh, think about this. That's fun. I was thinking that could be the three of you, the house of Tim, the house of David, and the house of Angelina. See, I just feel like this would get very nasty, and I would be personally crying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. Like every person that was not on Team Angelina, I would be over here crying into my yeah. close reads mug. Well, that's, that's exactly part of the goal. <laughs> well, we – I hate to break up the, the – uh, 
the comedy. But we, um, but yeah, but we do need to get moving here. We need to get into the questions. Um, I everybody's probably skipped this whole introduction at this point. Um, you know that problem with these close readers getting so good at reading. These questions are very hard. <laughs> well, I hey, I have good news about that. Like, though. Well, I'm out. I could. I saw the questions a couple of days ago, and I've been looking for them all day today. I can't find them on my. Facebook close page, I can't so find I, them either. I'll, I'll just make them. up my own questions. Oh, in them. Yeah, they're up at the top. Well, I've got them handy, so don't worry about it. So, okay. Oh, great. Here's where I want to start. This one, we'll start easy and we'll get hard from there. So we'll start, we'll start with this. Uh, Dad, you may be the one to answer this one in particular. Uh, Caitlin, yes, Caitlin asks, should I watch the BBC miniseries or will it ruin the book? Uh, I don't want to watch it if I'm going to be angry that they got it all wrong. Somebody responded and said, oh, oh, by all means, watch it. It's exquisite. Then do yourself a favor and listen to Jeremy Irons read the book. So you like this miniseries, right, Dad? Love it. I, I, I believe what the reviewers said about it, that it might be the best miniseries ever made in the history of television. Um, it's, it misses some lines, of course, because you can't have everything. Um, and it misses some that I would consider fairly important, but the, uh, it's, it's honest. It's accurate. I think Antoine is perfect. I think Jeremy Irons is, um, a little bit passiver, but now that I'm thinking about it, one thing you guys have drawn out for me is just how boring a character Charles Ryder is. And, and it considered in himself, he's a good storyteller, but he's not a very good hero. And I think Irons reflects that. I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And it's long too. It's nice. And it dwells on it. It's 10 or 11 hours. So it yeah. doesn't rush through it. You know, the recent movie is in two hours. Oh that's, my goodness. That's ridiculous. That's for, uh, no, you can't tell the story in two well, hours. Well, sure. But they do the same thing with Anna Karenina and everybody likes Les Miserables as a musical. And that's only... 175th as long as okay well, but that's it's a different, really it's a different you, just, you take out 400 pages of the sewers of paris and you're not really losing the story of jean valjean's redemption okay i'm gonna say it <laughs> there's lots of the room for cuts in les mis that are not in bride's head well film adaptation you tv ad- they're all it's a different art form you know yeah so that's a we can have a whole conversation about that form, exactly uh tim, tim have you seen that miniseries I have seen the miniseries. And, and you agree with this assessment? Completely agree with Andrew. Completely agree with Andrew. I think it's exceptional. I've, I've watched, watched it four watched times. It. I've never seen it. You've watched it four times? I, wow, okay. can, I say, can I say one thing about Jeremy Irons' reading? And I, I have to brace myself to say this because I'm going to be a little bit critical of Jeremy Irons, who is one of my favorite actors of all time and has a voice. I'm just oh, so right. envious of that voice, that everything voice. about it, pronunciation, the tone, everything. I don't think he, my hunch is that he didn't understand the book very well when he read it, because I think that there are, you know, when an, when an author, excuse me, when a reader really deeply understands the oh, book, sure. it, it, comes across in the performance and sometimes i just thought i don't know that does he know that charles is this is primarily a book about catholicism about you know somebody said that on the facebook page that exact thing 
interesting. And she, she said uh, that she thought, he, as much as she enjoyed his voice and, and what he did bring, that she thought he blew it in the scene where Julie is saying, I'm in sin. Like, there was just no weight. Like, I agree he, with that. He clearly really. doesn't understand what's happening in, in a way that came across in his reading. Isn't that yeah, interesting? Yeah, one wonders if it's possible to read that well. Yes. Um, it's kind of like King Lear. It, it, to put it on as a play is a really bad idea, even though it's a play, because you can't, you can't capture it, right? And, and you wonder, is that possible to po- properly act out what even the author says is condensed? But even so, I don't think he captured repentance. Hmm. Or not even repentance. I don't think he captured conviction. Right. He didn't capture conviction. I haven't heard it. That's what I... I haven't heard it, so therefore I, I have lots of opinions you. about it. Who raised you? This, this raised is you? not someone... I was raised not we to are use not audiobooks. saying don't listen to it. We're not saying don't listen to it. We're just no, saying... No, 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 no. The man is of incomparable quality, but he might have not understood something about the book. I think that he understood the book to be the journey of the artist instead of the journey of the right yeah of the convert or of the near convert or yeah you know but i I run into that so much when i'm reading or watching a a movie or something where, where i just think that it's not possible for someone who has not experienced a conversion themselves to really express it Mm. Right, because I mean, you're actors. You're tapping into something, but but you have to relate it. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Tim. But don't don't you try to find some emotion that you've experienced to connect to, so that there's a sense of authenticity to what you're expressing. And I mean, it's not like a legitimate. It's not like a huge criticism. I just sometimes wonder if it's just not. If you just can't do it. If it's just not. I'm not sure. Actor hasn't had a conversion at some point in his life about something that mattered. It's, it's how I feel about when, when somebody talks about religious movements and you just can see they don't really understand what that's like when you're I grant you that. something like yeah. that. You know, they're, they're thinking about it in sociological, political terms, and that's just, you know, that's not but what it feels like when you're But they're not professional actors. They're, they're arguers. They're, you True. Know, I get what you're saying. There's an analogy. But to me, to me, if you've ever experienced any kind of conversion, you can analogize it and, and act it. So then does Jeremy Irons not carry that scene just because he doesn't think that's what's happening? Is he I don't know. I think, his, not? I think his weakest reading is Julia throughout. I think that scene of conviction is hard. I think the scene under the stairs that you and Tim couldn't handle was hard. I was going to say, um, as somebody who failed in Julia myself, <laughs> uh, I have all the sympathy <laughs> in the world for that. Yeah, yeah I, I think the Julia character... Face it, Julia. Julia is not a movie character. She's an aristocrat. She's a lady. She's about back to that sentence again. She's about being simple and unobtrusive, right? Mm. So, so her whole her whole being is about ladylikeness. And how do you act that, especially when it gets hysterical for five minutes? Mm. Acting yeah. is about it's histrionics, right? I mean, that just means acting, doesn't it? Oh, dear me. I can't believe what I just heard. No, that's the literal meaning of the word, is it not? But what is the what does the word histrionics mean currently? It doesn't mean what it formerly meant. I refuse to subject my vocabulary to the current use of this uncivilized society that you and I are forced to live in. 
how many of the words that you just use are were shaped in their meaning by the vulgar society that we live in? All of them. Hardly All any. of them, Andrew. Hardly any. What are you talking most about? Of them have, most of them were established a good couple hundred years ago. And their meanings have wobbled and morphed and changed. And histrionics is a one that has, has changed fairly dramatically, to, to use the appropriate oh, word, nice. dramatically. It means now overly effusive. Um, it means melodramatic instead of what it meant, what it used to mean. Oh, it was all histrionics. It was melodrama. But that, I mean, of course, that's not what it used to mean. Like rhetoric. Like rhetoric. So let's restore the, the meaning of these words then. That's fair. That's fair. Like, do I have been on a mission to change the word, the, to reform the usage of the word rhetoric at Gutenberg? I just, that is, you. it's such a glorious word with such glorious content, but it does mean, what does it mean now? Political propaganda. hot air, propaganda, right. David, are you still there? You've been quiet. Well, I mean, what... I don't need to oh, say anything. I just wanted to make sure. I just wanted to make sure we were recording. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't say we were recording. Um, <laughs> you, you have the big, the big sensor button. Angelina. I stopped the recording a long time ago. No. Um, <laughs> all right. Next question. Uh, actually, this is from Caitlin too. Caitlin asked multiple questions. Why does she get all the questions? I don't Wait know. A minute. Does she get a mug too? Because I'm looking. I don't know. It depends on if she follows the rules. So Caitlin asks, uh, are Waugh's other works this complex? And she says, uh, this slow oh. to start. The only other one I've tried was a biography of Edmund Campion. And I admit, um, this is her speaking, I admit to having quit 50 pages in because it was all over my head. Is there another you recommend reading after Brideshead? Have, you, have any of you read other Evelyn Waugh? Not I me. I have not. I know that Andrew has. I'll, I'll read, say Andrew? to that, I'll just... I'll just give a brief answer to that. Brideshead is his masterpiece. Nothing else is like it. Nothing compares to it. That he, nothing else that he wrote compares well, to it. Stylistically, his, his other work his, is pretty different too. Yeah, he's extremely to tonally, well, he's, tonally well, and he's such. A, he's, he's a he's a comic writer a lot of the time, right? Mm -hmm. Most of his books are yeah are comedy. Like I'm looking right now at Decline and Fall, and I recommend Decline and Fall. It's a very funny book. It's about some guy who gets kicked out of. Oxford University because somebody else, some group of people pulled the prank on him and he, and, and it's all made great light of it. He just sort of skates across the surface of life that way. Very much like P.G. Woodhouse, who influenced was you, uh, was even that. was profoundly. Yeah, both of them are writing into the despair of the 20s. And exactly. That's his first novel. I would, I would write, I would read his stuff, but um, Vile Bodies, I've heard, is really great. That's the one you were talking about, Angelina, when you were mm -hmm. talking about uh, Dorothy Sayers and the um, Bright Young Things. Mm -hmm. Evelyn Waugh was, was um, not sure if he was a member of the Bright Young Things, per se, but he sure knew them well. Um, handful and of then, Dust. Um, handful Men, of Dust. Men at the Arms. Sort of Honor Trilogy is supposed to be really good, which I haven't read yet. Men at Arms is part of the Sort of Honor Trilogy. I think that's so the first I would, one. I would say read him, but nothing else compares with Brideshead Revisited. The reason Brideshead started the way it did is because it had to. Hmm. Hmm. 
Um, okay. It's a masterpiece. I mean, the more I read this book, the more I'm drawn in, into the, I just, I, my head floats off and, and I go, wow, this is, how did a human being write this? Oh yeah, I loved it. Okay, here's another question. This is from Angela. And she has a preface to this question. She says, I have three teenagers and a 20-year-old. Their perspectives on any number of subjects, and then, you know, parentheses, me, my husband, the church, politics, etc., have shifted in the past couple of years and will continue to shift as they grow and mature. They may judge some of these more harshly now than they'll judge them in the future. In fact, I can think of several opinions and experiences that I had as a college student, which I've come to see in a different light as a middle-aged person. My perspective also changed after I came to know the Lord and to make my way down that long road of sanctification. I mention all of this to ask this question. To what extent should we view Charles's impressions as being inaccurate or skewed due to mm. his immaturity and not having the wisdom that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Does middle-aged Charles seek to point this out to us? If so, how? Brilliant. Yeah, that's well, a great yeah, question. Did, didn't, didn't we talk about that? What is that scene where he kind of makes an aside about his his foolishness, right? Doesn't he say something like, Oh God, forgive me that I couldn't yeah. see Sebastian's holiness. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but even earlier than that too. So there's a few there's a few places where you you get this idea that Charles is judging him his younger self, right? Yeah. Krista responded to Angela's question by saying that this is why it bothered her that Wa revised the book so many times. And she says, our understandings change and mature, and I feel like the author should keep true to their understandings at the time of the writing. I feel like it's cheating a little, which is an interesting, uh, you know, comment on the question. Um, it does seem, though— oh, Can I pause on that for a second, David? Uh-huh. Yeah. He might have been changing it. He might have wanted to maintain Charles's kind of epistemic position, meaning he might have—Evelyn Wall might have wanted to preserve— um, how Charles viewed the narrative of his life, but he might have rewritten the book stylistically to make that clearer. Yeah, maybe. I know he wasn't real happy with it. Um, he thought that it was with the book. Yeah. He nah. He knew it was good. He even wrote that. But he was he was as years passed, he felt like he overdid the words. Right. Well, cause, and he talked about how when he wrote it, a lot of it he was like in bed sick, and so he was like longing for good food and friendship and companionship and good discussion, and so he felt like he it, to your to, as you said he overdid it a little bit. So he tried to tone it down in his revisions later on. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to make it more simple and unobtrusive, I guess. <laughs> Well, so do we have anything else to add to this question? To what extent should we view Charles's impressions as being inaccurate or skewed, skewed did it, due to his Im- immaturity? It does, you know, it does seem that Charles seeks to point this out, even if subtly. Where, where there's little references where he realizes, you know, he he comments on his own behavior as a young man. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, remember the whole book's about perspective, and he's writing it as as Angela said, she, he's writing it from the perspective of a middle aged man. I love that scene at the end where he says to Hooper, I'm, I'm homeless, childless, loveless, and whatever. And then Hooper waits to see if he was joking, decides yeah. that he was and laughs, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a great little perspective point. And, and, and he's writing, apparently, right around that time, right? The, the narrator apparently is communicating right around that time. So 
yeah, he's lost everything in this world. He's he's lonely. He's uh, socially, professionally, everything else. He, he's a failure, except he got to be in the army where he's an officer. And he's looking back on this young guy who went to Oxford and was a young guy who went to Oxford. But he's talking about he's talking about mistakes that he made, but he's also talking about stages of his opening up. Mm-hmm. Of his, of his right. moving into the, his discovery of the world. And again, Sebastian causes Charles to come alive. And later, Julia causes Charles to come alive. And I mean, I, I wrote, I think, on Facebook, maybe too concisely, but, but people that bring us to life are people we like. And people that kill us are people we don't like. And not everybody kills us all at once, right? So... I think that's one of the things that's being developed in the in the Charles character, and I think that I think that each stage of his opening up changes his perspective. So we're looking at multiple perspectives of him reflecting on his own life and on everybody on every character in the book. If you want to really get confused reading said, just create yourself a table of all the different characters and their perspectives on a given scene and then go through the whole book trying to hold every perspective in, in mind the way <laughs> Wow would have had to do when he wrote it. You know, I wonder if if we've lost the ability to have friendships like Charles and Sebastian. And and the reason that I ask that is because I'm reading this book right now about World War One and Lewis and Tolkien and the effect it had on them. And right now I'm at the book where the war's over and Lewis has returned to Oxford and is describing his experience and I cannot help but think of Brideshead Revisited. I mean, it's the same time period. He's back at Oxford and he, he becomes friends with Owen Barfield and he just he's describing the friendship and that he just, I mean, Lewis was a materialist and an atheist and Owen Barfield was like this super spiritual guy and they're just, and, and Lewis just thinks, spiritualist, right. And Lewis just thinks Owen Barfield is nuts, but he also mm-hmm. can't get enough of him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. And and they're deeply attached to one another. And he describes how they would just spend hours walking around arguing. And but they were so attached to one another. And Owen Borfield ends up being this huge influence on Lewis and, and part of part of the, the, the what God used to, to bring Lewis to, to faith. And I, so I keep thinking of the, the Charles Sebastian relationship. And was there something about that particular moment in time and that despair and that disillusionment and that alienation and angst after the war that made those kinds of friendships even more intense. Well, two know. or three words, uh, two or three things I would say real quickly. One is that that you put it in a in a negative mode, not in a not negatively, but in the negative mode of was it because of the war and the despair and the suffering. I do think that d- during times like that, people who maintain their balance can become really amazing friends. I think soldiers, you know. This is why I hate that they mess with the military so much sexually, because soldiers have the right to have right. incredibly close friendships, and those get contaminated mm. by, by all the social engineering. And you talk about a morale breakdown. But the other thing is, I, I always come back to Cicero's essay on friendship and the ending. What a friendship needs is virtue. What you know, virtue without which friendship is impossible is the greatest of all things. That's how Sir Cicero ends it. Virtue without which friendship is impossible. And so if our culture, and I think this is the case, our culture is so 
reductionistic and sexually um, obsessed, that that contaminates every relationship. And instead of being focused on virtue culturally, formally, on the cult of virtue, which is not ever achieved very well, but it can be consciously decided on as an objective. Okay. I think that hurts our friendships. I've often said to, to my students in class, I'll ask them, you know, what's the goal of education? And they'll give me all these inane answers. And I'll say, no, that's rubbish. The goal of education is friendship. And I believe that with all my heart. Um, friendship with God, ultimately. But we don't, I get, I'd get laughed at if I said that at a, at a public school convention or a, you know, a typical, even most Christian schools, goal of education is friendship. Come on, we got, we got practical things to look after. Well, what's more practical than friendship? So I think that what we're seeing is a devaluation of virtue that in turn is leading to a devaluation of friendship or a, or a disability toward friendship. What do you think about that, Angelina? Well, I feel like he answered the question I raised, which is, have we lost the ability to have these kinds of friendships? Yeah. I, I fear the answer degree. is yes, to a degree. To a degree. Yeah. Like, I think, you, I think it's much more difficult. Well, let me even, let me even challenge that. I'm going to say, I'm going to contradict myself and say no, because, because <laughs> virtue is always developed by overcoming obstacles. Okay. okay. We happen to have a lot of obstacles to overcome now. That means that we can become supremely virtuous compared to people. Back in the 50s, when everybody had it all pleasant and good, like the Buddha as a child, you know, that was a joke. But the, oh, sorry, were we supposed to laugh? Yeah. <laughs> you were supposed to at least get it. Come on. The goal of education is to get every joke, right? So I thought it was friendship. Wait, what? There's never, there's never a time when a person can't choose to be virtuous. It's never, ever easy to be virtuous because virtue is always developed in obstacles. So friendship follows virtue. And now the problem we have is we're so, we've got such a reduced view of man, of, of a sexually evolved being, right? That's fundamentally who we are. So I think if two men in our culture feel very strong affection for each other, they get, they get scared by it. And that's because they've been they, they have not been given the sort of Lewis options, the, you know, like his, his chapter on friendship, philia. They mm -hmm. haven't been given that option. They don't see that option very much. And, you know, if two, I wonder if something like Brokeback Mountain doesn't become the model that two men start feeling a great love for each other and they start being scared that they're going to they're gonna be gay or something like that, right? There is such a vast... It's, it's like a Achilles and... and Patroclus, yeah. That's his friend's name. Patroclus, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, they they write about it. You read you you write you read about it on the on the blogs or Facebook, and it's just assumed they must be gay because they loved each other. Well, how stupid! How absolutely stupid can you get? Sorry. No, no, I think Men that's right. Men can love each other with great and profound affection, and it doesn't have to be sexualized. And that has to be. I just have to say that loud and clear so that any boys who might happen to overhear this man my friend eric his last name was gay we were not <laughs> we we loved each other like name, jonathan and david i think so yeah but we loved each other like jonathan and david and even that they make the accusation i had nothing 
I held nothing back from him. He held nothing back from me. And we never, ever had anything approaching a sexual relationship. So it's just nonsense. You know, I've seen my, my high school male students say things like, if they go to the movies together, they leave an empty seat between them. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Like to yeah. make sure nobody thinks they're gay. And I just think. So nobody thinks they're right. It's terrible. It's, ter what, what, it's what, cruel. Ho what a horrible framework, though, that they have to be thinking about that all the time. Like, I want to make it's sure cruel. I'm not accidentally sending the message that I'm gay instead of just having a friendship and enjoying that. I, it's cruel. It's cruel, Angelina. You go to Italy, I'm told. I haven't been to Italy. But at least in, back in the 80s and 90s, and I assume it's still the case, men walk along and they're holding hands and nobody thinks anything of it and they're not gay. I know that's true in the Middle East. It's, it's just true in nonsense. Africa as well. Part of it is our Puritanism as a culture. We just got so, so, so extreme on our sexual terror that it was inevitable that something like this would happen. But there'd be a boy, snap talk back. about blowing your brains out. Well, with that, <laughs> uh, we got a lot of questions about one specific topic that we should cover the rest of this episode. Tim has about 20 minutes left, so um, after that, we'll call it a day. Um, Leslie says, I can see the symbolism of the chapel at Brideshead being reopened, but can you break down exactly how Charles is converted? The, Beth the deathbed scene isn't enough to convince me. A couple other questions like that. Um, Someone says, Kat says, I'm hearing this is called a conversion story, and I see hints of that, but very little sincerity of faith. More, more what I'd call just religion. Ooh. I'd say many of the characters were seekers or spiritually open, but I don't quite equate that to true faith or actual conversion yet. Wow. Um, Can you and then, read that last one again, David? Yeah, Kat says, I'm hearing this called a conversion story, and I see hints of it, but I see very little sincerity of faith, more like what I'd call religion. I'd say many of the characters were seekers or spiritually open, but I don't equate that to true faith or actual conversion yet. And mm. then someone else says, the Sebastian storyline really bothers me. Cordelia essentially describes him as being an alcoholic the rest of his life, and, and he repents of it every few days. Then she says he gives people hope and that God loves people like him. Is this what Wa considered a conversion? So... Mm. Ah. Uh, certainly, there's matters of definition going on here, um, mm -hmm. but how uh, how do you respond to the to the gray area that people are seeing and whether or not it's an actual conversion? And maybe we start with Sebastian because there were two questions about that. Uh, someone asked um, when and how did Sebastian come back to the faith? Did he ever really leave? I feel like he fell off the faith off the map, and I didn't really understand exactly what happened to him. Hmm. It, it, I like it, the uh, question uh, of did Sebastian ever leave the faith. I like that question because I'm yeah. not sure that he ever did. He had to reintegrate himself. Right. He yeah, wandered. Did he ever actually leave? That's a that's boy. That's a good question. That's a hard one. Sorry, Christine. I'm not 100 percent sure we can answer that 100. <laughs> percent Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and let me just say about Sebastian that my favorite indicator about his conversion is when Cordelia is talking, telling his story to, to Charles toward the end, and she says, you know, he, 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 well, basically what she says is, I'm just like him, but I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. And I love that because, because what she's saying is, you look at me, and everybody's been talking about this throughout among us and on Facebook. Cordelia is a lot of people's favorite character. 
she's she's the most religious and pious. She doesn't say so. She says Sebastian is just like me. I'm just I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that I think that how to put this other than to say that what Waz is doing is spiritual, not moral. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what I was going to mm-hmm. say, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Exactly what I was going to say. Say it then. You develop it. Well, I was going to say it. it it seems like the kind of like underlying these questions is this kind of um, maybe puddle or, or puzzle or confusion about it seems like these characters don't go through a um, profound moral change. They seem to be in many cases kind of the same sorts of people so how can we call it a conversion if there's not a an accompanying profound moral switch? That's, right. Are you guys hearing the same thing? Right. And, sort of. And, I, sort of. And, and so kind of what I'm feeling about this is we are all in agreement that repentance has fruit. Right. The question is, what does that fruit look like? And does it have to always look moral? Certainly some people's story is that they have a radical change in their life, right? Um, but that's not everybody's story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with my priest uh, two years ago, actually. So I met someone that was a lot like Sebastian. And he was very troubling for me. I, I didn't have a category for him because he really struggled with alcohol. He'd go through periods of abstinence and then he'd be right back on it. Right. And I would just think this guy is self-destructing and, and we'd talk and, but he loved God and he would go to confession and he was, you know, he was doing the things right. But then he would fall back and then he would just, but he was very open. Like he knew it was wrong. He knew he hated that he was struggling with this. Um, and, and I believe that he was very sincere in, in the way that he and correct in the way that he thought about his own struggles with this. So I'm talking to my priest about it, trying to figure out what to think. And this is what my priest said. He said, he struggles against it, and most people don't struggle. Mm, yeah. And so yeah. that kind of went into my mind as a category of repentance. That some, maybe sometimes the fruit of repentance just looks like that you struggle against it, not necessarily that you have victory over it, right? Yeah. And Sebastian struggles. Well, let me just add, yeah, he does. He does. He doesn't, he, he, his will is broken, right? That's what Cordelia says. He does suffer because he doesn't have a will. This is not a happy thing. But he keeps coming back. And to me, that's the essence of our walk yeah. with God is yes. we're prodigals who keep coming back. Let me, yes. let me, let me give you a parallel, okay? You, you think Sebastian might not have converted. You think Julia, by saying, by saying you know, I'm, I'm going to keep on sinning perhaps. Man, let me tell you something that women are going to have a hard time getting used to in the next 20, 30, 40 years. An awful lot of men and some women are going to be spiritual people who are addicted to pornography. Mm. There is so much of it out there. And from everything I read, the I don't wanna go into details, but you can have a walk with God, you can be a wise person, and you can have a terrible sin that shames you and embarrasses you and weakens you and cripples you, that for whatever reason, God does not just deliver you from, and other people will not forgive you for it. Mm. Oh, that's a great point. 
and that will be part of your sanctification. And Sebastian's man, alcoholism is an exact picture of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. I think I think so. And, yeah, I and think alcoholism, so. or or gossip, or or homosexuality, or pornography, or um, sins that maybe are more acceptable. All of them. Them require repentance and repentance and repent and constantly coming back to our Lord. And all of us have that. That's why Cordelia's highest moment is when she says, I'm just like Sebastian, except I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. Because that's where she's the most humble. And there's a reality here that I don't think we like to talk about very much, which is that you can inflict such a wound upon your soul that you cannot recover from it in this life. Mm. And when I was in high school, I went to a Christian school and, and, you know, we had the, the run of chapel speakers who would come in and they all gave you the same speech. I was the homeless drug addict. I was this, I mean, we had gay prostitutes. We had the whole nine yards coming and saying, and then I said the sinner's prayer and now I turn my life around, right? And I remember... The teenage boys in my class taking from that story this. This is what they'd say. Well, then what's I the point? I don't, they'd say, they'd say, I'm just gonna, they would literally say, I'm just going to have my fun. And then when I'm old, I'll, I'll repent. And, mm-hmm. and I remember looking at them thinking, but what if you can't? <laughs> like, you're you're mm-hmm. assuming, you know, you say the sinner's prayer mm-hmm. and then everything's fine. But what if you can't? What right. if you wound yourself so much that you can't repent? Or even if you are able to repent, okay, let's say you can't. That doesn't mean that you're not going to be so wounded and damaged that you're just going to be able to snap out of it. I mean, there's a reality there. There's a disease of the soul, just like there's a disease of the body. I mean, if you go out and visit prostitutes and you get syphilis and you repent of that, you still have syphilis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like me with my knee, right? I didn't, I didn't exercise properly in my 20s and 30s. And as a result, my knee deteriorated. And there's, the Lord has been good to me. But apart from some miracle, that knee is never going to work properly again. And God does do miraculous things in people's lives. Yep. And I'm grateful that he does that. And there are stories that I fully believe are true. God turned my life around and miraculously did all these things. And, and, and thank God for that. But that's not everybody's story. And I don't even know if that's the norm. And I think I feel like modern Christianity has made that the expectation that if your repentance is genuine, suddenly your you life just, just snaps back into yeah. shape. Yeah. I wonder if we don't misread the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, because what we typically do with that parable is we have the good kid and the bad kid, and the bad kid goes out and ends up eating with the swine. But Jesus never indicates that there was a good kid and a bad kid. No, you're what he absolutely says is right. There were, there were two brothers, and mm-hmm. one stayed home, and he was bad, and one went on the road, and he was bad. And the one who went on the road and came back, came back to the father— and the one who stayed at home and was bad, and that's it, right? It's not a question of are some of us good and some of us bad, which isn't what the person's asking who sent them the question. I don't mean to imply that. Right. right, but, right. but we can't we can't fall into that, that there are some people who are good and some people are bad. Look, in some way, we all believe in sin. We believe in the thing that Julia was in and with and by and over and through, right? Lived in. We believe in in the, the, the hyper-destruction of our souls by sin. So why are we 
is when, well, we're it's so unbearable. That's why. But we're horrible beings, every one of us. Let's 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 use that to jump to this. There's two specific parts to this question that people brought up that I'd like to look at before we go. Maybe David, five. I wanna, could I? I know I'm like a terrible close reader participant, but I want to say two close readers. Every once in a while, I hear something from you know one of you guys, and I want to underline it in my mind, or I want our our readers to underline it in their minds. And what Andrew and Angelina just said is one of those things, like it must be underlined in your mind. And it's what the book says also. It must be, I I could not agree more, especially with what Angelina, how she articulated it. There's sort of, when we tell our conversion experiences, our conversion stories, it's almost like it doesn't count if there's not a, if it's not a victory moment in this mm. life. And sometimes it's, we don't have victory in this life. It only happens after the, after we pass. And that's a hard thing to accept, but I think it's what, I think it's what Jesus taught. Mm-hmm. It is a hard thing to accept. Very. Well, so we struggle with our sin and we try to love our neighbor. Yeah. And part of that, accepting that is like, that's where the role of faith comes in. And that's one of the questions that, that Kat brought up because she said she sees hints of conversion, but very little sincerity or faith. And so I'm curious if you guys could respond to whether um, you agree with her or you understand where she's coming from, or maybe you just do flat disagree that the characters have very little sincerity or faith. And I think faith is probably a particular question worth contemplating. Do we see, where do we see evidence of faith in Sebastian, Charles, Julia, and so forth. And Tim, you have to go in a minute, so I'm going to let you respond to that first if you'd like. And then mm-hmm. if you need to go, duck off whenever you whenever you need to, and, and we'll uh, catch up with you next week on uh, okay. when we discuss Gilead. So do we, do we see evidences of sincerity and faith? Um, boy, for me, Julia's departure from Charles is... Mm-hmm both. I mean, she loved that man. They had, they were in love with each other and to call an end to it because of what, what looks like to be some sort of budding or rejuvenated or returned to however we want to word it. Faith. Um, that strikes me as the ultimate insincerity. And I, the question is a little bit confusing to me because I, I read all of the characters to be quite sincere. The, the mode of discourse of the time is one of um, kind of foppish rhetoric. Uh, it, it's, it strikes me as it's a time full of um, like, a, I don't know, posturing of insincerity or something like that. But it seems to me like what Waugh catches is below all of that all of these characters are fighting with all of their hearts to figure this thing out. And it struck struck me as quite sincere. I love what you said about the posturing of the time. The the book I'm reading makes the point that everyone sort of adopted irony after World War I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to see characters just emoting all over the page about, I love Jesus, right? That's just not how they're going to talk. 
but we do I I never questioned their sincerity. Wasn't sure if it was going to stick. Right, right. But I mean, oh, it doesn't exactly stick for Sebastian, but the idea of it, at least it doesn't stick for long periods of time, but it does stick in that there's a continual turning away, like a continu- right. like what, that continual uh, yeah. repentance. Yeah, like they don't say, no one says I'm done with the church. Right. They try to. They try to. It's funny because yeah, that, writing... that ironic stance that you just pointed out, Angelina, it shows up in Hemingway's books also, especially The Sun mm-hmm. Also Rises. There's this yeah. there's this distancing themselves. And I think that they're distancing themselves from a collapse, a cultural collapse that is deeply confusing and also painful for them. And, you know, all of us want to step away from pain. When there's a thorn in our arm, the thing that we are obsessed with is getting the thorn out. And if you can't deal with the pain of like a cultural collapse, then what do you do? Well, you distance yourself from it by uh, feigning not to care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, either through a cynical or a sentimental response. Everything's yeah. fine or eh, life sucks. Yeah. And in a way, that scene, that breakup scene between Charles and Julia is almost like a microcosm. Like, I really appreciated when you said, no, you have to play this scene very understated. Uh, you know, everything's just under the surface, and I'm very self controlled in that moment. Because I think it's easy to miss the heartbreak of that scene. It's sincere and mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking. And, and, and I struggled to see it in there. And so I think that might be why we're also struggling to see the sincerity and the heartbreak of the of the feelings toward the face. Because right. it's all that very controlled, you know, British, upper class, upper stiff lip, you know, yeah. stoicism. Yeah, I wonder if there might also be a... Um, um, a British Catholic versus an American evangelical, possibly, mm-hmm. um, understanding like of repentance. For example, you said, well, possibly temperament, yeah, but, and, and also what you look for. So one of you just said something like neither, neither of them ever left the church or, or something like that. And I think, I don't know the person who, who wrote the question because I'm not looking at it, but if it's, a, if it's an American evangelical Christian asking that question, I don't think they're going to be impressed by right. a person going back to the church. That's not proving any sincerity. Right. 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 Anybody can go to church. But if you, the difference is, this is how I would suggest the difference. And it's represented, I think somebody said, in the lighting of the flame again in the, in the altar. Okay. If you, if you go to church and there's no oil in your lamp, you're wasting your time. But if you're going to church with oil in your lamp, mm. You know, then in other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you go to church with faith, then it's a different experience. And if Sebastian, as an alcoholic, goes to church, to the monastery, to wherever he's going, with faith and with the Holy Spirit, then that's better than a person who's proper and decent going to church, and there's no oil in his lamp. Mm-hmm. And I think what what the might well be asking is, okay, show me that oil in the lamp. Show me that sincerity um, in these characters. Now, I think, I think you guys, I think I, I have to agree about Julia. I think you guys, for, for me, you settled the question. For Sebastian, I don't think there's any settling the question. Oh, he is right. a broken man, and, and either God 
accepts him as he is or he's not going right. to have any hope. Right. But I like, I believe that he is repentant, but we only have Cordelia's report. Right. Um, I believe that the father who dies is repenting because, oh my goodness. I mean, the whole thing was about a sign, right? You want a sign mm-hmm. of repentance? He did the very only thing he could do, and he did it in front of Kara and his children. Right? That, to me, that was that was the thief on the cross. That, yeah. But do we know? Can we know? Of course not. And maybe that's part of Waugh's point is you, here, here's, here's Charles Ryder presenting the case for this broken family, repenting as they know how repenting as they're able. And if you don't buy it, you might well be right. And if they were real people, I would say, therefore, pray for them. (laughs) Well, something about this is the nature of storytelling, too. I mean, you don't usually just tell a story that goes on and on and on forever and deals on the rest of someone's life. I mean, most great stories end with a moment of stasis. Mm -hmm. Unless you go till everyone dies. And then even then, we can't know. So... Um, like as oh, far comedy. as yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so can I can I and, say this, David? Though, yeah. um, for a Roman Catholic, there would be no conversion and repentance that did not look like going back to the church. That is not the same thing though right. as saying going to the church equals conversion and repentance, because we see that with Rex. Right. He's willing to do the thing, and and Wall and the characters are horrified by that. That that's uh-huh. not that's not good enough. Don't do that. Whatever you say, Father. Isn't that right. what it is? Lines? Whatever you say, uh, Father. Yeah. yeah. Just tell me what to believe. Which yeah. Is tell me what to believe. Rex is hardly penitent, is he? Tell, right. tell me what tell me what prayer to say. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that can be a little bit of a hang up for us who are not Roman Catholic, is just lumping that all together as if, well, you just go to church and that's it. No, there's some distinctions being made there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just good enough. Like what you were saying, Andrew, it's the, the, the light's got to be there. And I think, now for Charles, the light is in his heart as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's the light that he sees. The light has gone on in his own heart. By as far as I'm concerned, you mean you're persuaded of that? Well, I mean, that's just how I read the end. I don't, I don't read yeah. that he just goes yeah. into a chapel and sees a light, that he's yeah. talking about the the light in his own heart. Well, and Agreed. that's, that's the other point I was going to make about the nature of storytelling is that things are revealed Like someone said, um, I can see the symbolism of the chapel. And I was recently, I recently was reading something or watching something. I can't remember what it was where someone was talking about symbols. And then the other person said to the, to he said, it's just a symbol. And then the, the other person said, it's just a symbol. A symbol is everything. The symbol is, the symbol is every, everything there is. Um, and it's kind of like what that. The in, cosmos is right. It's all a symbol. In, yes. in storytelling, the symbols that the author creates, the pictures, the images, the metaphors that the author, author creates are the most essential way of getting at the truth that they're trying to reveal. And yeah. so we can't get every detail in a story. We're not going to have everything explained to us. But the way the author decides, or in any art form, the way the artist chooses to show that, you know, it's that show, don't tell thing. The way they choose to show to show that to us reveals, a, you know, a lot about their intentions and about how we should feel about the story. And I think that's, right. you know, so the nature of storytelling. And what it means. Exactly, exactly. And so the nature of storytelling think, can help us understand the story you itself. You know what else I think could be troubling about the end with Charles is that I think Waugh is presenting conversion as a mystery. And so something mysterious hmm. happens to Charles when he goes into the chapel, right? He didn't see the light, and then he sees the light. It's just like Lewis describes, I was 
walking along and I wasn't a Christian. And then at the end of the walk, I was right. And, like, and for what it's worth, it is mysterious. 10 years on. It's still meaningful to Charles in some way. It's, it has mm-hmm. changed him in some right. way. You right. Know, uh, when right. He's but if you're looking stories. for some, like he has a talk with himself and accepts the propositions, I mean, that's not the moment. We're, yeah, we're yeah, yeah, there. yeah. We're seeing a mystery. Hey, can I say one more thing? This is before I go. Yep. It's so this interesting it. to me that so many of my favorite books all end at this point where Charles ends. Like, oh. Crime and Punishment ends. Oh. Well, I'm going to ruin the book. So this is a spoiler <laughs> alert. 300 year spoiler alert. 200 year yeah. spoiler alert. David doesn't alert. believe that there's spoilers when it comes to a classic. If it's longer than 10, if it's been, if it's older than four years, then there's no such thing as a spoiler alert. Okay. Then this isn't a spoiler alert. When Raskolnikov's conversion ends the book and it's like the book is just beginning when the conversion happens. And there's a book that I love by Walker Percy named it's like marriage. And Lancelot ends when a priest who has been sitting with this man in prison, and the man in prison has been confessing all of his crimes, and the man in prison, spoiler alert, says something to the effect of, is there anything else to the priest? Is there anything else that you would like me to – is there anything else that you want to say? And the book ends with the priest saying, yes. Oh, it's not, it's not wow. a conversion, but it's just like – it's the beginning. It's a whole different life is about to Im- Charles is about to embark upon, I think, an entirely different life. The light went on, and now he's about to embark on an entirely different life. It's a whole other book. It's like the beginning of another book. Right. Where, they, where he starts a consulting business with Rex. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they make a million dollars. And <laughs> and they all live happily ever after. <laughs> that, was, that, that was the cynic in you, Andrew, just coming out. I'm sorry. Well. <laughs> I'm sorry. Where was he hiding all this time? <laughs> in your front shirt pocket. I gotta we're all in that. agreement yeah, my, that Rex does pencil. not have a conversion. So at least we're all on the same page for that, right? <laughs> I want to. I want to see Quellery does. I want to see Rex saved. Hey, there's hope even for Rex. Do we just nope. don't see it in this book? Can we pray for Rex? Josh Gibbs would if say we can, can. If you can pray for a fictional character, that's true. Josh Gibbs would say you could pray for a fictional character. I'm well, okay with that. We should. We should work towards wrapping this up now. So, um, I just want to say, Dad. Yeah, when Josh Gibbs enters our conversations, we wrap yeah. it up. <laughs> That's the mic drop. Just moment kidding. Ever. I love Josh Gibbs. Um, well, Dad, thanks for being on these episodes on Brideshead. Um, I, this has been this has been fun. Fun couple of months discussing this. Thanks to everyone for all the the energy and all the input that everyone's put in the energetic input that we've, we've been getting on online and in person at the conference. Um. If you've been privy to the conversation on Facebook or were at or, or listened to the last episode and listened all the way to the end, you'll know that we are going to be reading Gilead, Marilyn Robinson's book, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize in, I think, 2005. We're going to read that next. Um, we're going to start. We're going to read about 30 pages every week. Um, it divides up pretty nicely that Ooh. way. So we're going to read pages 5 through 37 for next week um for now we're going to stick with friday for a few weeks and we may shift our reading our recording schedule a little bit once the school year starts to suit everyone's fall schedules but we'll let you know all the details on that and then um that will go through october october 6th and then uh october 13th 21st and 28th or 13th 20th and 27th rather 
assuming we're still on a Friday schedule, we're going to discuss the murder on the Orient Express, the Agatha Christie novel, leading up to the movie, which comes out on October 29th. And then we can do a little oh, ep- fun. Then, then we can do an episode discussing the the movie. Um, oh yeah, that's awesome. So uh, th- that'll be a fun fun fall, I think. And then we'll do one more before the end of the year. So um, get a copy of Gilead. Should be available at. Uh, the library pretty easily Amazon and I see it all the time at used bookstores and library sales and stuff for just a couple of dollars so I bet you'll be able to find a copy pretty cheap it's not a terribly difficult book to read but it does not have chapters in a traditional way so we'll just go to section breaks on those pages so uh, page okay. 5 through 37 for next week um, and uh, I guess that's it thanks to everyone who sent in questions remember to if you want a chance to win that mug head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever leave a starred review leave a comment um, review and then make sure you've subscribed to the Close Reads feed specifically the Close Reads feed and then let us know on Facebook that you did it Um, I guess that's it anything else you guys want to add before we take off not me a very a very passionate and warm thank you, like you said, to the to the people participating in the Facebook discussions and listening. Absolutely. I've been amazed, amazed by these people, by you people, by you guys. I've said this so many times, but I'm going to say it again. And Tim probably has the same experience. You know, when I was in academia, the sing and there were a lot of disillusioning things. Okay, but the mm. single most disillusioning thing was that my <laughs> colleagues, the ones who were going to be the professors, did not read the books. Yeah. And so I cannot even tell you how happy it makes me, how encouraged I am that. You know, but I say I always talk about the homeschool mom is going to be the game changer. I don't know how, but I agree. Like, there's I agree. a whole totally bunch of women agree. out there reading books educating themselves and i just feel like this is going to have a long-term cultural effect that we cannot even anticipate and will it ever show up in a history book could it can, like if you're exactly. writing the history of the 21st century will that ever show up in the history book i can't imagine that it would but i i challenge you on that more. you'd have fourth to have century. the right historian you'd have to have the right historian andrew fourth century the most famous saints of the fourth century are Basil and Gregory and Gregory, who were all brought up by their sister Macrina, who homeschooled them and their parents, Amelia. And the, and I go to a St. Amelia's conference that is for homeschoolers because she was a homeschooler. It will make the history books. You're right. You have to have the right historians. But if but man, it's already happening. Colleges are changing because of homeschool moms yes. who love their children. And that's yes. what you've got to understand about it is it's not by trying to change the world that we do good. It's when a mother loves her children that the world has changed. And that's, what, that's my hope. That's what I constantly come back to. And let me Can just I... throw this encouragement out there to our, to our listeners. Like, I know it's overwhelming. I know you pick up these books and you think, I don't know what I'm doing. But you're picking up the books. Same you're reading yeah. the books. And the people in the universities, whatever idea you have in your mind of what this is like in a university, that is not what it's like. like they're not even right. reading the books. Absolutely. They fall out of love with if books. You... I want to say one last thing. I know we're trying to close, but I want to reca- I want to um, step back what I said. If that what we hope to come true comes true, that the effect of all of these wonderful homeschool moms upon their children actually has a, a permanent and la- provides a permanent and lasting change, well, then we'll have all sorts of like 
historians trained in that mode, ready to write mm-hmm. that form of the history. So That's true. I absolutely step back. What I there's some son or daughter right now who's nine years old who's going to write that history because it's been part of their experience. Yep. But I think the point you were trying to make is is well is well taken. It's not always presidents and generals of armies yeah. that change the world. Sometimes right. it's a mom loving her child, like Monica and Augustine, you, right? That's yeah. what changes the world. Yes, same area too. If you want positive change, don't look to generals and politicians. We're going to avoid co- political comments right now. We're avoiding so political all comments of you right now. Toast, all of you homeschool moms listening right now and homeschool dads, toast yourself. Job well done. You guys <laughs> yeah, are yeah. great. And it's not like we don't go yeah. to these books with fear and trembling ourselves anyway. Oh, so Yeah, we do. Right. I don't know a thing about Gilead, so you're about to watch me be all kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we've already determined no one's watching. Um, all right. Well, they just let's... have to make sure they get our thirsty guide to reading. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, yeah, you can you can get that at CerseiInstitute.com right now. Uh, thanks to <laughs> New College Franklin and to Scully Academy for for sponsoring. And uh, please check out those classes that Tim is teaching at ScullyAcademy.com. Check out all their, all their offerings. And it's NewCollegeFranklin.org if you'd like to look more into to New College or check out maybe check out maybe getting a, a, a tour or something like that. So uh, great, great schools. Check out what they're doing. Uh, for Andrew Kern, for Tim McIntosh, and for Angelina Stanford, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern, saying farewell here on Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.